Hi, everyone. In today's episode, Kavita and I speak with Dr. Payne and her daughter Amanda about their experiences navigating a mental illness and how it's affected the way both of them view the healthcare system and society. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast Against Disease, brought to you by Humanity Against Disease. Hello, everyone. We are here today with one of our returning guests, I I dare say perhaps a friend of the show, Dr. (laughs) Jennifer Payne. She is the director of the Women's Mood Disorders Center at Johns Hopkins, and she is an associate professor of psychiatry there, has been one of my mentors through my training. Those of you who are dedicated listeners will have heard her other two episodes. This time, we've opted to speak with her and her daughter, Amanda. Today, we're here to talk about stigma, particularly with respect to mental health and psychiatric illness. Amanda, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about your story and how you identified that you had mental health challenges? Sure. So when I was in eighth grade... I became depressed for the first time. I didn't do anything about it. It it seemed to get better, but what I didn't realize at the time was that my mood was starting to cycle into this manic depressive flow. Okay. This would become more clear a few years later when these mood cycles would become more intense. Basically, the big break came when I was a junior in high school. I tried to kill myself and I ended up in the hospital at Johns Hopkins. While I was there, I was not very forthright in everything that was going on. And I ended up being diagnosed with major depression and then released. And I really felt like that whole hospitalization was completely useless. A few months later, I was hospitalized again. And this time, I was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder bipolar type. For people who are less familiar with the mental health diagnoses, that diagnosis captures the uh, manic cycling that you were talking about and is a bit broader in its experience than what someone with major depression would face. What do you think led you to hold back what you were experiencing during that first hospitalization? Well, first, I just want to say that I like to describe the schizoaffective disorder as the child between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, because you have symptoms of both. Basically, my whole life, I was very introverted and shy and asocial, and I didn't see any reason to tell anybody anything because what I was going through was intensely personal. I guess I just didn't trust anyone. How do you think that's affected the care you've gotten and and your journey through working with your mental health? Well, if the doctor doesn't have all the facts, then they can't provide the best care possible. I knew that, but there's just kind of like this disconnect anyways, because the emotions that you're feeling are so strong. Nowadays, when I see my psychiatrist, I do make sure to tell all the details that are important, but there's things that I still hold back because I don't 
see how they're necessary for the doctor to know whether it's like a certain delusion that is very private to me or something like that. Of course, I'm not a typical case because my mother taught me a lot about psychiatry while I was growing up and especially after I became ill. And I've been interested in it because I want to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner so I can observe myself and understand the patterns of my symptoms better than the average person. So really the difficulty is bridging the gap. Patient does not want to share or doesn't think it's important to share or just doesn't trust the doctor. And like, how does the doctor make the patient understand that it's necessary for their well-being? Amanda, what was it that made you start to trust your doctors? Did that develop over time? Was that based on a specific way that somebody communicated with you or made you feel? How did you build that trust and start to tell your psychiatrist more about your experience? So I think at first I would tell the doctors things just because I felt pressured to. Mainly, I had this very close relationship with my mom, and she is the one that started to figure things out, basically. It still took me many years to become open to the idea of taking medication and things like that. So it wasn't really until I had a real understanding of how psychiatry worked that I understood the importance of being straight with your doctor. It's difficult because there are a lot of bad psychiatrists out there. Like, I'm, I'm just going to say it bluntly. There's a lot of bad psychiatrists out there, but there's also plenty of good psychiatrists. And it's up to chance whether you get a good psychiatrist. I can understand that. I've often said, and I think I may have said it during one of our other episodes, that because of the nature of psychiatry with so many things moving on kind of a slow time frame and there being so much of a psychosocial interplay with the illness, it is possible to get away with being a less than ideal psychiatrist for longer than it is in some of the other medical fields. And Amanda, what signs do you think you look for that someone is a good psychiatrist or a psychiatrist you'd want to work with? One thing is that it's it's clear that the psychiatrist is really listening to you. Sometimes it can feel as though as a psychiatric patient, the psychiatrist is viewing you as lesser than a normal human being. You know, these psychiatrists will fall into these like egotistical airs. But when a psychiatrist really like levels with you and is there in the same space with you, really listening and trying to understand your experience, I think that is incredibly important. I also think it is incredibly important that the psychiatrist explain in a way that the patient can understand what is going on with them and what the psychiatrist is planning to do to help them. Because if you have a patient and you're just like, all right, we're just going to put you on this and send them out, then 
they have no reason to follow the medication or recommendations that you've provided for them because they don't understand the worth of it. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, how could somebody possibly buy into their care plan if they haven't been brought into the decision-making process? And that is something that sounds like happens in psychiatry a lot more often. Have you noticed a difference in the way uh, either you or other doctors approach people with mental illness versus people with other forms of medical illness? Definitely. I think there are a lot of biases that biases that I am trying to overcome as well that exist where if somebody has a mental illness, anxiety, depression, any other type of psychiatric illness, sometimes I feel like we often will get into the, the very terrible stream of thinking where we'll think, oh, you know, this symptom, it's they're probably just being extra anxious about their stomach pain and it's probably just nothing. It's probably just indigestion, but it's just their anxiety that's the actual thing to focus on. And so I think sometimes it really can mess with your head and make you discount what somebody's telling you because you think that their psychiatric illness is kind of ruling every part of their life and, and, you know, what they are experiencing physically. And sometimes that does end up to be true that a lot of their physical symptoms are part of their depression or their anxiety or their schizophrenia, but the majority of the time it is not. And so I think a lot of people, they end up leaning on that when they really shouldn't, when they really should try and figure out why is this person having stomach pain? You know, what's going on? Let me ask more about it. Let me do the test that I would do for any other person that, that didn't have a psychiatric illness. So I definitely agree with that. And I think your description, Amanda, fits really for any kind of doctor that you'd want to have in any specialty and honestly any human being that you'd want to interact with. Somebody who actually listens to you, explains what they're doing and thinking to you and doesn't let ego get in the way. Thank you so much, Amanda, for sharing all of that. Dr. Payne, what was your experience of learning and understanding that Amanda was going through symptoms of schizoaffective disorder, her time in the hospital, her ultimate diagnosis? How did that affect you personally and professionally? It was a really tough process for me, particularly because I am a psychiatrist. When Amanda first got depressed, I was intermittently, I would say I was intermittently aware of it. And every time I got ready to suggest maybe we should see a psychiatrist or therapist, she would look better. And in retrospect, that was the bipolar part of her illness. One, she'd be really looking depressed. And then the next week, she'd look fine and be funny and entertaining and interactive. And as a, as a mother, it was really hard, even though I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a mood disorder specialist, it was really hard to differentiate between what could be depression and what could be normal teenage angst and withdrawal. And so that was pretty tough. To be honest, when I look back on that, I am hard on myself for not having had the intuition to, to take her to a psychiatrist sooner. 
And the the other part I would say about that is that when she finally got extremely ill and became psychotic, it, to a large extent, it was out of left field for me. She had been what I, you know, in retrospect would say cycling. So she had been depressed. Then we've had a really nice little family vacation. Her half-brother came to visit. Amanda adores her half-brother. And I came home a little bit early from work one night and found her crying in bed, kind of inconsolably, and said, what's going on? And she said, I just can't talk about it right now. And I thought initially that something gone on with a friend or maybe she'd had a love interest not go well, normal teenage stuff. And I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go downstairs and work on dinner. And there was something about my instincts that just, just went on high alert. And I went downstairs for a little bit and then I came back up and I said, you have to tell me what's going on. And she confessed that she had overdosed with oxycodone. And so we went to the emergency room and ultimately I was able to arrange for her to be transferred to Hopkins. And at the time, it just didn't make sense to me at all. This is my very organized, very responsible child who keeps me in line. And the fact that she had done this and it, 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 there were other things that she, she had cut herself, for example, when her brother had come from Chile to visit, just didn't make sense to me. And during the course of that hospitalization, she eventually talked to me about the psychotic symptoms that she was experiencing. She told me about them very directly. It was difficult because other people treating her who had her best interests at heart didn't really see them as psychotic symptoms. I think it was hard for them to be treating a colleague's daughter. I remember the day that I recognized that she was psychotic and I came home and I talked to my husband a little bit and I said, I need to go upstairs. And I, I went upstairs and he had the instinct to follow me because I just, I'm not sure you know this, Amanda, but I completely broke down because I, I totally understood what was happening. And my, my husband was extremely supportive. It was one of his best moments, I have to say, in our long marriage. And, but I think, I think what was hard was nobody wanted her to have psychosis. And I didn't want her to have psychosis, but I wanted her to be treated appropriately, right? Yeah. And so... I think everybody was hoping that that would go away with treatment of the depression. Mm -hmm. And she did get better. But I think in retrospect, that was the bipolar part. Because when she was out of the hospital, based on my observation, she was actually cycling about every three days. Oh, wow. So she, it was, and it was like, almost like clockwork. It was really phenomenal to watch. So she would be psychomotor retarded for first three days and disheveled and clearly depressed. And then she would cycle up and she would stay up till one thirty in the morning talking to me, which was great. And I can remember 
having these thoughts of this is a wonderful situation that I'm getting to talk to Amanda this late at night, but I know it's abnormal. This is not normal for her. So anyway, it was a very, it was, it was a long process of, of really coming to terms with exactly what her diagnosis was and the best way to get her, get her treated. And like she said, during that first hospitalization, she was not forthcoming um, with what was, what was going on or exactly why she had overdosed. She had left a note that was, in my opinion, pretty clearly psychotic. And my husband knew almost immediately, he has a family history of schizophrenia. His uncle was schizophrenia. And he, from the beginning, said that she had schizophrenia. And I I think what, what made it harder to identify was the bipolar parts, because she really would look very ill and then look better. She's a true introvert, and so when she's in a high phase, it's not completely out of wild behavior. So when she would be in a high phase, she would spend maybe $100 on Amazon and stay up talking and want to get makeup, <laughs> and which sounds like kind of a normal teenage girl, right? Yeah, that absolutely. probably wasn't totally normal for who she is at baseline. Okay. So yeah, it sounds like that that temperament made things a lot more subtle. Um, oh yes, and I think also that she was a teenager. She's developing into who she's going to be as an adult, and so as a mother, I know she's going through that process, and that she can want to wear makeup one day and not want to wear makeup a week later, yeah. and so sorting all of that out was was difficult at the beginning. Yeah. And now that I'm working in child, I see that struggle from families, patients, and, and us on the treatment team all the time, which is like, you don't want to pathologize normal behavior, but you also don't want to write off something that means something as normal teenageness. And that's such a tumultuous time, as you're saying, that it's not, exactly. it's really not easy to tease that apart. So I do want to turn back to Amanda how has this diagnosis uh, affected your relationship with uh, your family? It sounds like you and your family have been pretty close going into this, and uh, clearly you're at least on speaking terms, and <laughs> it, it seems from my earlier interactions that you guys are getting along okay, but I'd really like to hear your perspective on how this has affected all that. When I became really ill in high school, I didn't want anything to do with my family. And part of that could be I was a teenager, but I felt these really chaotic and destructive emotions. I just wanted to reject my family, basically. But when I started recovery, when I I started to become closer to my family again, And nowadays, I would say that I'm very close to my family, especially my mom. I call her, like, every day just to, like, (laughs) it's complicated. It's just the main point, I would say, is that when I was really ill, I really became closed off to everyone and everything. When I started recovery, I was able to start forming human connections again. From what we've heard so far, it sounds like you are a 
pretty introverted person to begin with. How have you navigated your knowledge about your mental health and uh, your recovery process with the way you interact with peers? I have always been, I don't want to say like an outcast, but like somebody that's on the edge of any social thing going on. When I was in high school, there was a group of people that I considered my friends that I would sit at lunch with, talk in the hallways before class, but I didn't feel close to anyone except I started dating someone who was a junior and had a very intense relationship. They were also developing some pretty serious mental illness, but that kind of got swept away when I got hospitalized. When I got to college, I basically got very lucky because my roommate was a total extrovert and she automatically took care of me. So she would like invite people over and I would kind of sit in my corner and sometimes interact. That's actually how I met my husband. So my introversion and this kind of like asocial nature that I've had was one thing, but then another was that I'm weird. I behave strangely. And I know this because I am very observational about myself. And I never disliked myself for anything because of my symptoms or because I was weird or anything. But I was always like hyper aware of this. I think it made me just want to be more quiet in social situations. A couple of years ago, I started taking a drug called gabapentin, which has a few different uses, but in my case, it was to treat this intense anxiety that I experience. And it was kind of like amazing. Once I started taking this drug, I found that I could actually be social. Nowadays, I still mainly interact with people through my husband. Nowadays, I'm kind of like at home because I'm waiting to hear back from Vanderbilt, but my husband's already started grad school and he's making friends. And so I'll go with him and like become friends with his friends. But I just kind of prefer being alone, I think. Just having the two strong relationships of my husband and my mom is kind of enough to satisfy me. Yeah, and I I think that can be the case for a lot of people who would rather have, I guess, quality over quantity in their interactions. Amanda, a couple of follow-up questions. Once you got diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder or even started to realize that you had mental illness, did you have certain expectations or thoughts about how your life was going to be or what things you would or wouldn't be able to do or anything like that that was similar or different to what you expected. What were your expectations once you realized what you had and did those end up to be true or false as you moved forward? I can think of when I was in my early years of high school, I was planning on being a neurosurgeon. When I got hospitalized the first time, I kind of was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. I had been ill for many years at that point, but just very quiet about it and this was kind of like a sudden upheaval and everything was like really distressing and chaotic and 
I mean, I didn't really expect to live for more than a few more years. It was kind of like I got caught, so now I have to continue living until I can find another chance to break away. So I don't really think I had any expectations because I was kind of just like living through each moment and each moment was your suffering. Now that you have gone through treatment and you are on medications um, and, and getting other psychiatric care, how has getting your mental illness treated and in a more controllable state, how has that changed your view of the future and your view of the possibilities you have in your life? So my mood cycling is controlled with two different mood stabilizers, and that was really life-changing, realizing that my mood was like now stable and I could think without it going into some sort of chaotic mood state. When I decided to go on the second mood stabilizer, like my mom said, I was cycling about every three days, but basically it was becoming so intense that I would have a whole series of beliefs one day, and then the next day it would all reverse. And I was wow. losing the sense of self. And so that was very scary. So that's part of why I ended up agreeing to go on a second mood stabilizer. But schizophrenia is not as easily treated. Obviously, you can take antipsychotics, but it turns out for me, the psychotic symptoms are not really the issue. It's the negative symptoms, which are usually described as when you lack something that you're supposed to have. So for me in particular, a motivation is a huge problem. I still, I will go into states where I, I feel completely emotionless and this is disconcerting, thought blocking. That's a huge one. Mm -hmm. And then also cognitive symptoms, lack of concentration, stuff like that. And, you know, the interesting part is that when I was first hospitalized, the negative and cognitive symptoms were not very present. It was only as the illness continued to develop that they became more and more problems in my life. I'm going to get neuropsych testing in about a week because I feel like my cognition and my just my brain in general has changed so much since I first got hospitalized and got neuropsych testing done. But anyways, I think that once I got my mood stabilized, that was the important first step. There were still a lot of problems that I had to deal with. Like I still had anxiety. And even though that's better on gabapentin, it's still a daily issue. Uh, I have heart palpitations all the time. And there are these negative symptoms, which literally there's not anything you can do about them, except there is some evidence that using um, amphetamines like Adderall can help. So I am looking into that, but Basically, I have become very aware of my limitations and I still want to have a career, do the things that I want to do, but I have to be realistic and say, I will need time to rest after this or it will take me longer than I want to reach my goal. And I can live, but there's 
things that I have to be aware of and deal with like every day. Like I have to make sure I take my medication six times a day. I have to make sure that I'm getting nine hours of sleep. I have to make sure that I'm eating properly. And I just feel like everything I do, whether it's just practicing Spanish for an hour or cleaning the bathroom, it's going to take such a huge amount of effort. I basically, I feel like normally human metabolism is able to function because it has enzymes, it has catalysts, because without these catalysts, the amount of energy needed to do the reaction would be insurmountable. Well, I feel like when I developed schizophrenia, a bunch of my enzymes just like disappeared. What Amanda is not telling you is that she is incredibly smart and always has been. When she got ill, she started talking about when math got hard, like math used to be easy and then math got hard at some point. When we figured out what the diagnosis was, as a parent, it was incredibly hard to know what to do. She was about to go to college. She got into a really great college, Mm -hmm. a college that she really wanted to go to. This is Colby up in Maine. And she was very ill. And we had to make a decision about whether to send her or not. It was really very tough. And my, my husband and I both knew that we needed to make that decision, but we actually didn't talk much about it directly just because it was such an emotional decision. I think we both had questions of, can she manage at college? Can she get through college? We're both NDs. We, We understand what the diagnosis of schizophrenia generally means. And she was on medication, but was still pretty symptomatic. She was refusing to take antipsychotics, which I'd like to come back to in in a, a little bit. It was a really, really tough decision. Like, do we let her out of our sight? <laughs> do we subject her to the pressure of going to an intellectual institution that, though very supportive, is known for having really smart achievement field students, right? I remember my husband came home from work one day. We were sitting down in the living room. We we try to have some quiet time every time because he's a true introvert as well. <laughs> and he kind of sighed and he said to me, I know it's crazy, but I think we should let her go because if we don't, she'll never go. And I said, I'm so glad that you're thinking the same thing because that's exactly what I think. I think we should give her the chance. So we did. And that was probably one of the harder things I've done in my life is to let her go to college. And it was absolutely the right decision. That first year, she continued to be pretty ill. The second year, she went back being willing to try a second mood stabilizer. She tried one over the summer that did not work and went back to her psychiatrist at Colby and said, I want to try this medication. He eventually agreed, and that was the right medication. It stopped the mood cycling. And the rest of her years at Colby, her mood was pretty stable. Not perfect, but pretty stable. It was very difficult to let her go 
we weren't sure what to expect is the honest truth. And, and I feel so lucky with how this has played out. Amanda, even though she has cognitive symptoms and negative symptoms and struggles with those, when, when she says she suffers from a motivation that's compared to her motivation prior to getting ill and her motivation prior to getting ill was incredibly high. So this is, this is a person who tries to study Spanish almost every day. She writes, she does artwork. She, at this point, I think manages the household, et cetera. And I'm sure she struggles with it. I'm absolutely positive she struggles with it. But she, particularly compared to who she was before she got ill, but she's actually quite amazing. We've been very, very lucky. The one thing I wanted to say about the antipsychotics. So early when Amanda was getting hospitalized, we did try antipsychotics. And Amanda, maybe you want to chime in on why you hated them. But she at one point decided that she just was not going to take antipsychotics. And that was hard for us because... With schizoaffective disorder, you generally need to take an antipsychotic. And where I came down on that was to really work on insights. And Amanda and I had lots of conversations about understanding that she has a mental illness and that there are symptoms that she has that she should not act on because they're not necessarily a reflection of at least our reality. Mm-hmm. And what has been amazing to me is that I've come to realize that insight, (laughs) at least in this case, was much more effective than an antipsychotic medication. Interesting. And which has been very fascinating as a psychiatrist and, and I think has probably changed my practice. That doesn't mean I don't prescribe antipsychotics because I do, but... I have really come down on the side of working on insight, that insight is key to managing psychiatric illness on an individual basis. And Dr. Painter, Amanda, for our listeners, can you describe more about what insight is? From my perspective, it's understanding that you have an illness that alters your perception of reality. And by reality, I mean what most of us are experiencing most of the time. So one of the things that I had Amanda do, and I have a lot of my patients do, is watch the movie A Beautiful Mind, which is a great movie. Um, And it's about John Nash, who got the Nobel Prize for Economics but also had a very serious mental illness, became extremely ill, was not able to work for years. schizophrenia. Yeah, he had schizophrenia, but he may have had a bipolar aspect to it as well. It's unclear. In the film, he gets extremely ill, very psychotic, clearly stops working, and then slowly kind of comes back from that, starts teaching again. And you're kind of lulled into this thought that his illness is better. Mm-hmm. And then when he goes to get the Nobel Prize, the, the way they film the, the uh, story, you realize suddenly that, no, he is still hallucinating. And you realize he is still actively psychotic. He's just learned 
that the people that he hallucinates are not to be responded to and that they are an alternate reality or that he doesn't have to interact with. He's gotten the insight that these people are not an accurate reflection of reality and he doesn't need to respond to them. And I use that all the time from psychotic symptoms to suicidal thoughts that having a psychiatric illness means that part of your brain is not functioning properly and you may not be assessing the situation completely accurately. And once you recognize that, you don't have to get emotionally involved in that inaccurate assessment. Um, I just want to say that insight is also applicable to mood symptoms. Let's say, for instance, that even if you don't have a mood disorder, but you're about to start your period and you're feeling like really irritable and you start lashing out at your husband, but then you can have this moment of insight where you're like, well, I'm feeling irritable because I'm hormonal and I should not give as much credence to this emotion or at least, you know, not act out because of it. Those are really good explanations from both of you. And I think that insight is really applicable to to most of us because I think a lot of times we're experiencing something that may be related to something other than our present situation. So I really like that you tie that to like the menstrual cycle and premenstrual symptoms that a lot and probably most women have. I'm reminded of mindfulness principles. I know my my Tai Chi instructor is always talking about trying to be a participant and an observer and to maintain active calm in the present moment. And it sounds like this is basically the same tool set that you guys are describing. Uh, Amanda, just adding that checkpoint between the emotion going off and you responding to the emotion in whatever default way one would. That's something that seems much easier said than done, but boy, I wish we could confer that to more people. (laughs) I would say as a psychiatrist, that's probably the number one thing I work on with patients. It is interesting to hear that as one of the pillars because certainly, Dr. Payne, I I share your opinion as as a psychiatrist if someone comes in with a diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder and is not interested in antipsychotics, I would be very concerned to the point where I would be doubtful that I could do much for them. And to hear that this is much more complex than that is, there's an element of hope to that. And it sounds like something that even as a practicing psychiatrist who's working at an institution where you're going to see some very unusual cases, that's something you may not have learned if you had only seen these things professionally. Right. And and like I said, it has opened my mind to other possibilities. I think that's an important point. That, that doesn't mean I think no one should take antipsychotics, but I think there are cases that could be open to not having to take antipsychotics and my daughter falls into that at this point. Can I explain why I didn't want to take the antipsychotics? Yes, please. So first, I believe that antipsychotics are a very important 
medication that are absolutely necessary in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. But the fact remains that they have horrible side effects. You've got that right. I was so sedated on these antipsychotics that I could barely move or keep my eyes open. Wow. And, you know, you just don't want to live life that way. The other reason I didn't want the antipsychotics is because maybe I had some illusions that were not the safest things in the world, but I also had a lot of psychotic experiences that made me really happy and made and gave meaning to my life and were not making me do things like hurt myself or hurt anybody else. So I didn't really see why they had to be taken away through through insight, through mindfulness and other dbt skills that my mother taught me i could keep the negative things in check basically i'm going to do plug here i um, based my honor thesis around the religious experiences of people with schizophrenia one of the main points that i make in my paper is that Miracles and madness can go can coexist. In other words, just because somebody is diagnosed with mental illness and you know has a mental illness doesn't mean that there can't also be some divine thing going on at the same time. So I feel like more respect has to be paid to people's psychotic experiences because they can be like very important and sustained to give them something spiritual that sustains them. Yeah, I, I think it's it's been a big element of culture that it, it would be hard to believe that at least some of the world's religions didn't actually emerge from a combination of people with some conditions like these and whatever else may have influenced them. And uh, that was a question I was hoping to ask uh, later, and I'm glad that you brought it up. I hate to propose that any kind of illness, no one deserves to have any illness, but it sounds like in some way this has actually helped steer your life course and brought you a really unique perspective. Because I can't even imagine uh, what it must be like to have those experiences and be able to ponder them through as you have. Before we do move on, I did want to ask this, because uh, Dr. Payne, you brought up this idea of a beautiful mind and the, the representation of people with mental illnesses. I know there's a lot of depictions of people with mental illness in society, and I think one of the major sources of stigma is how often they're portrayed negatively. For example, how often a, a lazy screenwriter might say that, oh yes, someone with schizophrenia is going to go be a serial killer, whereas the Statistics do not line up with that at all. And people with schizophrenia and similar conditions are much more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. Can either of you guys speak to particularly positive or negative representations of people with any kind of mental health concerns in media? I do think that John Nash in A Beautiful Mind is probably one of the better known ones, but I just wanted to see if there was anything else you wanted to bring attention to. The Joker movie recently? Hmm. Oh, yeah. I love the Joker movie. 
I thought it really portrayed the struggle he was going through and the way he was being treated poorly by society. And there was a lot of hubble I can't say about that movie because, you know, in the end, he does kill some people. But, I mean, like, when you're watching the movie, you have to understand that this is, like, a movie about the Joker. So the the mental illness thing is, like, colliding with, like, this fictional world. And you have to just, like, take it for what it is. One movie that I watched a few years ago was called I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay. And it's, I, I don't know if it's, like, Korean or... Japanese but this this movie is about this girl who believes that she is a robot and she won't eat because she thinks that she can only get charged from batteries or something and so she's she's wasting away basically and one of the other patients figures out that he is going to pretend to open a compartment in her back and fix some things so that she can eat human food. I enjoyed this because he was working with the delusion rather than against it. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting paradigm shift and something that I feel like certain more psychoanalytic approaches might... uh, have tried, but I feel like that's just not even part of our teaching anymore. And it's kind of interesting to think about approaching it from that standpoint. Yeah. And I will say that being a parent and having a daughter with schizoaffective disorder and kind of coming up against these issues really brought that to my attention, that it doesn't necessarily have to be as much of a struggle as sometimes we make it. And working with the patient and not against the delusions can be effective. Yeah, I think there might be a lot to that. I'm thinking back to our interview with with Adam Rosano about how it seems that no one ever has delusions that there are mice living in the walls and they just hang out and it's not nobody's problem. But I mean, maybe that is maybe there are a lot more benign delusions out there than we know about and we're just not seeing so many of them because we're not asking the right questions or because those people mm-hmm. aren't presenting for care because they don't mind. And and that could be affecting our perception of the presentation of the condition as a whole. Right. I could uh, kind of agree with that thought, Cody. I, I'm thinking about my dad, who is a, also a primary care doctor and has practiced in you know the same town for many, many years. And sometimes he would tell us about his experiences with patients in a HIPAA-compliant way. And so he, I remember two stories that he told me about two different patients that he took care of. And, and one was a patient who told him, oh, I, doctor, I'm hearing this beautiful music. And he he then asked her, which I think was very patient centered at you know at the time when he was telling me, and I didn't realize that it was. He said, "Oh, okay. What do you think about the music? Do you like listening to it? Otherwise, we could try a medicine that could you know make it quieter or make it go away." And she said, "Oh no, I love this music. It's absolutely beautiful, and I'm you know I'm really happy that I get to listen to it." And so he said, "Oh, okay. Well, then in that case, we don't need to do anything." And then he had another experience with a patient who 
had a delusion or hallucination, I don't know the right word for it, but that there were very noisy neighbors living upstairs. And so my dad, the way that he would talk to the patient about his or her symptoms was to just ask, how are the neighbors? You know, are you getting a lot of noise? Instead of saying, how is your hallucination? You know, that is not real. That is wrong. He would just say, how are the neighbors? How's the noise? And the patient would say, oh, you know, things have gotten a lot quieter now. I think they moved away. And so I think that is actually really beautiful, that movie that you bring up, Amanda, to to kind of just talk to people about their reality and how it is and take the time to figure out what is bothersome to them and what isn't. I have just a, a quick kind of tangential thought about this. The autism spectrum is being thought of more and more as a neuroatypical state rather than an illness per se, since there are forms in which people get along differently, but they have a different set of strengths that go along with their vulnerabilities. Should we be thinking of the schizophrenia and schizoaffective group of psychotic presentations more as a neuroatypical state rather than uniformly as an illness? I don't have an answer in mind. I'm just curious. So I've actually thought about that a fair amount. And and to some extent, I would say yes, except for the fact that people with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder often benefit from medication. So from that perspective, it fits into an illness. But one of the things that I have thought about a lot, that there are gifts that come along with these illnesses. And for example, I realize I'm a proud mother, but Amanda is truly an amazing writer and her poetry is phenomenal. And I think of that as as at least partially due to the fact that she has this brain disorder that gives her a different perspective that allows her to to convey things that most of us don't really sit down and try to convey. So I think whether you think of it as an illness or a neuroatypical state, there, there are, like like most things in life, there are good parts and there are bad parts, right? And the trick is to make the most of the good parts and to minimize the bad parts. But I, I do think that there are aspects to these illnesses that have contributed to society and religion and culture, literature, art, et cetera, that we would miss if they weren't there. Did you read my thesis? Oh, yes. Um, Cody, do you want me to send it to you? Yeah, sure. Is it something you'd be comfortable with us um, sharing with listeners, or do you want us to just take a look at it? So the thing is that it's not published because I uh, wanted to publish it by myself. Okay, well, then certainly we won't leak it or anything. Um, If if and when you do get it published, we'll plug it for you. (laughs) I don't mind if you want to, like, read some quotations or something. Okay. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. I found some interesting information about large numbers of people who experience psychosis, but it doesn't bother them. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound that far-fetched to me. I mean, people go out of their way to obtain psychedelics to have experiences that are very similar, at least uh, in, I, in no, the they're description. Not. They're, no, psychedelics are not similar at all to psychosis. <laughs> okay. I stand corrected. But they are... 
I will stand by the point that they are a reality altering, they induce a reality altering state and people find it something that they seek out. Not that, again, I, I absolutely take your word for the fact that it's not comparable in its nature. But uh, I think what was dangerous for Amanda were her mood states. Mm -hmm. And once we got her mood states under control, there's still psychosis, but she's not necessarily actively acting on from a negative mood state or a, or a positive one for that matter. I, I agree because right? um, in these intense mood states, there's a lot of impulsivity and like you can just see things from a much clearer view when your mind is not muddled by these intense mood states. Also, in regard to the question about should like people with schizophrenia say like they have like, an atypical brain or whatever, I think that it's really complicated because schizophrenia is clearly a bunch of different diseases. Yeah. And so I don't think that you can answer that question accurately without having specific causes identified but i will say that for myself i clearly have a large genetic component to my illness looking back at my history there doesn't seem to be much that would trigger something like this i didn't take drugs or drink alcohol or anything before i became ill I've had to think a lot about, is my illness separate from me or is it a part of me? And in the end, this is just like my personal interpretation because I think it has to be a personal interpretation. But I feel that my illness is a part of me and I would not be the same without it. No matter how I struggle every day or like what hardships I've been through, I am grateful that I have this illness, that I have this unique experience, and I feel that there are ways that I can benefit from it. Schizophrenia is a developmental disease, so as the brain is developing, it's changing, becoming abnormal because of, like, who knows why. But basically, I am near the end of the major developmental phase of my brain and I feel like my brain is atypical compared to the brains of the general population like the the wires are crossed differently so that's how I see it but I think every person who has a mental illness really needs to needs to create a schema hmm. for what they're experiencing by themselves that must have been a lot of hard work to to try and understand how the illness fit into the larger context of your life experience. And I think that it's not a given that people approach their mental conditions this way. I feel like there's still a lot of acute disease metaphor in the way we think about health and wellness. You either are ill and have something or you are well and it's gone. And that's just not the way most illnesses we face anymore really work so to integrate it like that is a a paradigm that i wonder if we should be moving 
closer to the center of what we do as healthcare providers? I completely agree with that. I mean, even just from a purely medical perspective, after my son was born, I started developing this autoimmune condition. I absolutely resisted the heck out of it. (laughs) And finally, my husband kind of convinced me to accept it and accept that there would be days that I needed to take a nap and, you know, to kind of stop resisting the fact that I had this illness and to incorporate it into what I was trying to do in a realistic perspective. And that was when I started to get better, (laughs) was, you know, stopping resisting this as something outside of myself. I realized that that's harder in a lot of other illnesses like cancer or whatever. But I I agree with you that if, if you go at medical and psychiatric illnesses from a more holistic perspective, I think it goes a lot better. Yeah, and I see where stigma could really play into that because there's this cultural notion that a lot of diagnoses just leave somebody a non-person or no longer a valid member of productive Mm -hmm. society. And clearly, life is not that simple. I think it's really important to talk about stigma with mental illness. For and, And one of the things that Amanda and I have done, have kind of agreed that we would talk about her mental illness and be open about it because... If a family like ours, where mom is a psychiatrist and a mood disorders expert and dad is an MD who is a neuroscience expert, can't be open and straightforward about Amanda's schizoaffective disorder, then no one can. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really, it's not that it shocked me, but surprised me was that when she got ill and we hospitalized her, where I work at Johns Hopkins, several people said to me, gosh, you're so brave to hospitalize her where you work. And it just brought home to me that the stigma is absolutely there because nobody would have said that to me if she'd had a brain tumor, right? Yeah. And it was purely that she had a mental illness and probably a psychotic mental illness at that, that that was brought up. So I thought at that point that made me really determined with Amanda's permission to be totally open and honest about the fact that that I have a daughter with schizoaffective disorder because I would be totally open and honest if she had diabetes or a brain tumor or cancer. That's part of the reason why we're, we're doing this podcast, obviously. Amanda, how, how have you felt about stigma? Well, basically, um, I, I actually told this to my husband the other day, which is I'm not afraid to tell people that I have schizophrenia or schizoaffective because I want my friends to understand me. And you cannot understand me if you do not understand that I have schizophrenia and have to deal with like certain things because of it. And that I might act strange because of it. And I don't really believe in hiding things. Another thing that I think we should all speak out about is that menstruation is a perfectly normal thing. 
and women <laughs> should not feel like they need to hide that they're on their period when Very you know true. it can really <laughs> affect you it can be extremely painful it can affect your mood like all those things so I just had to put that out there but basically ever since I was diagnosed I did often catch myself feeling really uncomfortable in situations where people were putting down those with mental illness, specifically schizophrenia, or equating people with schizophrenia with murderers and stuff like that. I think that the only way to stop that sort of thing is to like speak up and say, hey, you thought I was a normal person? Well, I have schizophrenia, and there's no dissonance there. Because I do feel like most people schizophrenia who are able to go back into school and society try to hide it and I don't think that should be necessary because it's just something that we have to deal with and it's part of us for better or for worse. Thank you for sharing that with us. If there's anything else you guys want to discuss we certainly want you to have the platform. I do realize we're running short on time but I only have one other question before we would propose the supercut questions, which I believe, Dr. Payne, you may have already answered. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> she, she could have different thoughts at this point That's in true. her life after like a year. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was like two years oh ago. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. Um, but so the, the question I got to get off the stack here and then we can see if you guys have other things you want to cover is uh, I heard a cat on the call earlier and I feel like we need to credit this cat. <laughs> Who is this beast? Was it my cat or, or mommy's cat? No, well, I, I muted George. Um, no, that was Tito, sweetie. Oh. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> Tito, Tito the kitten. That's her new. That's adorable. Yeah, he's, he's my little baby and he's always screaming at me. Oh, no. So, I really, so, so now I know how my mom feels like. <laughs> Yeah. Milk. <laughs> yeah, Kavita doesn't know this yet, but we're one of our next fundraisers is going to be a felinity against disease cat calendar. <laughs> okay, you have to have a picture of George, Rufus, and Tito. Rufus oh. and Tito are Amanda's. George is my 14-year-old big boy oh who zoom bombs my patients every day. <laughs> We will we will send out a, a call for submissions and yeah I'd love to get like photographers involved. Oh we my could gosh! Have, like, yeah, we could have crazy lighting and costuming and um, I, I, I picture a smoke machine being involved somewhere. <laughs> I don't think any of our models are going to enjoy that. <laughs> were there any other points that you wanted to highlight or things you wanted to make sure were said? So I'd like to say something as a mom sure having your child get ill whether that's a physical illness or a mental illness is probably one of the hardest if not the hardest thing that a mom can go through in their lifetime and when your child has a mental illness I think it's really important to think long term and not short term and it's, I think it's really easy to try to get into struggles, particularly with a, a teenager. But really what the, the key is to keep working 
with your child and to be their advocate, to be on their side. In my case, what I think really worked was educating Amanda about psychiatric illness, medications, working on insight, etc. And I, I feel so lucky for where we are today. I think it's just important for families to try as hard as possible to bond together and to support the individual who's having the problem and really see it as a long-term situation and not get into the nitty-gritty of little struggles over day-to-day stuff. And I don't think that I would be where I am if I did not have my mom to support me this whole time. When you are that sick, you feel all alone, but she really made it clear that, you know, she was there to support me and to help me. And eventually I was able to open up to her more than I could to the doctors. And she helped figure out some of the important key things that were going on with me. It does seem like a a rare coalescence of factors to be uh, in that position and to have somebody who's not only able to be a mom for you, but also understands at least the theory behind what you're going through. And um, it, it sounds like this was a really hard time for both of you and for everyone in your, in your spheres of, of influence. Um, and it's really incredible to hear just how, you guys came out on the other side of so much hardship in a place that is, it sounds awfully stable and promising. Yeah, we're very, very lucky. And I have a strong belief that I was meant to be Amanda's mom. This is why I'm a psychiatrist. <laughs> and I think Amanda is, is going to give back to the world and we're able to be in that position, at least partially because of what we've been through. So there's a good side to the struggle. Thank you so much, Dr. Payne and Amanda, for talking to us today about your experiences and and your thoughts on how we can reduce stigma and the importance of supporting each other through mental health and mental illness. And about plugging that we all need to talk about periods like they're normal things and part of our experience because I totally <laughs> jive with that. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of women menstruated at some point. <laughs> yes, well, thank you for having us. I really appreciate giving us this opportunity, this forum to, to speak out on this. We're really happy to have you guys here and feel honored that you were willing to share this really immensely personal set of challenges with us and hopefully with uh, some people out there who need to hear this because of what what's going on with them or people they care about. We have two questions that we ask, try to ask every set of guests, and then we're going to kind of mash them into their own episodes of just like people answering these questions. And so, Cody, do you want to ask your question first? Sure. The first question we ask is, what is it that motivates you to do what you do? What I would say today is, and this is going to perhaps sound cheesy, but love and compassion. I really want to make things better for 
people in general. In my work life, I have picked postpartum depression and management of psychiatric illness and pregnancy, but I have an awful lot of patients that don't fit into those categories. And then there's my family and friends, and I really just want to make people better. I think love and compassion really motivates that. I'll just say why I want to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner. I want to do it because I can do it, and then I feel it is my duty to do it. Nobody understands better than me what it's like to be a patient with schizoaffective disorder who is rejecting treatment, who doesn't want meds, and then like kind of sees the light and realizes the importance of it all. I became so passionate about psychiatry. I was with my mom at work and we were driving home and she turned to me and she was like, you know, you could be a psychiatric nurse practitioner. Because at this point I thought that you could only be a psychiatrist and I knew that I couldn't make it through med school. And I was like, what? Like this job exists? This is the perfect job for me. Nice. So... I feel that it is my niche. I really want to help some people who are facing some of the same struggles that I have faced. That is beautiful. And I think you're going to be able to make such an impact in the field of psychiatry. Thank you. Now our second question, which is through your life experience thus far, what have you learned about happiness and what it means to live a good life? So that, in my opinion, is a fantastic question, particularly in the current political international situation with the pandemic and politics in the U.S. I think happiness is under your own control. Absolutely, there are things that happen that make you unhappy, but ultimately there are skills and ways of looking at life that can help you weather even the hardest things and get to a point where you're grateful for the hard things that happen. And maybe that's Pollyannish, and I'm sure that there are things that people are going through that are almost impossible to do that with. But for me, happiness is really about my mindset and how I'm looking at things or taking care of myself or interacting with others And if I intellectually set my life up to try to make sure that I'm taking care of myself and interacting with others and paying attention to how I'm looking at things, that mindfulness aspect, my happiness increases. I think that your relationships with other people are really important, even for someone that's as introverted and asocial as me. The fact that I always have my husband to support and take care of me really makes living life with mental illness manageable. More people should try yoga. <laughs> like my dad should definitely try yoga. Um, and I also, I watched this series on Netflix called Midnight Gospel, which is basically a series of philosophical discussions. And I sort of had this like aha moment a couple weeks ago where 
I truly understood that as I am just existing in this moment, I am enough. And, you know, I might have goals or whatever, but I do not need to fulfill the goals in order to be enough. And I'm still kind of dealing with this revelation and how it's going to impact how I live my life. But a lot of times when people say something like, you are enough to you, like, it feels like really cheesy and you want to discount it. But if you look into it a little deeper, then maybe you can understand in your heart. And that's a total different understanding than just hearing the words and understanding what the words mean. I also think people should have more cats. Yes. Is there an <laughs> upper limit that people should be aware of or like worried about? It's up to the cats. Like George, George is a loner. He needs just himself. Uh, don't become a hoarder. Definitely don't become a hoarder. Yeah, I'm. I'm up to two here with MSG and Remy. So. <laughs> gosh this was so fun thank you guys for coming on it's our pleasure send us the final version absolutely i really appreciate you doing this we're more than happy to thanks for joining us everyone we hope this discussion gave you a new perspective on mental illness and wellness we'd love to hear what you think and keep the discussion going send your thoughts to us on twitter facebook and instagram or send us an email at againstdisease at gmail.com